Before we dive in, when we were together live, we took some time simply to name how exploring violent parts of the Bible made us feel. What comes up for you knowing that we are about to explore why Revelation has so much violent imagery in it? I'll give you just a sec to note your feelings, and then we'll dive in. Lord, may your spirit lead us forward. Amen. One goal that John has as he writes Revelation is for his readers to not be surprised. He hopes that they will see their earthly situation with heavenly eyes and then respond accordingly. In our last sermon, I talked about two ways that that comes through that have to do with the apocalyptic nature of Revelation, that it's an unveiling where people would see something clearly. In that case, I mentioned how John hopes that people would see evil clearly and then be able to respond with hopeful resistance, and also how they would see Jesus clearly the lion who is the lamb, and respond with worship. But as we continue on looking at how black theologians help us read Revelation better, we cannot avoid that the imagery in this book is challenging in a particular way. It's violent. For example, Revelation 9, 6, 3 to 6. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given authority like the authority of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So that's nice. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Or Revelation 14, 9 to 11. Then another angel, a third, followed them, crying with a loud voice, Those who worship the beasts and its image and receive a mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. And then verse 12 closes, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. So the question today is, how do black theologians help us understand the violence in Revelation? Alan Bosaic is a black theologian from South Africa, and he writes, people who do not know what oppression and suffering is react strangely to the language of the Bible. The truth is that God is the God of the poor and the oppressed. Because they are powerless, God will take up their cause. The oppressed do not see any dichotomy between God's love and God's justice. Black theologians stretch those of us who don't live in or have a legacy of oppression and suffering to see justice as love. And they invite any of us who have suffered terribly at the hands of someone else to perhaps experience God's love for us through God's justice. You may remember that John's readers in first century Rome were facing the choice to acquiesce and simply deny Jesus in order to say that the emperor is Lord and worship the emperor instead. And both their livelihood and their life depended on that. So many would want to. Yeah, Rome is evil, but what can you do? John then, as the writer, he has a huge challenge to overcome how to encourage them in sharing this vision to so deeply yearn for the end of evil 
that they will bear witness to Christ Jesus, no matter the cost, because he's the only one who can end it. That's what we hear, for example, in Revelation 14, 12, which I just read. Here's the call for the endurance of the saints to keep the commands of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Because acquiescing to evil doesn't end it. It feeds it. There's this vision then of those who did just that, who bore witness to Jesus and were killed because of it. What happens to those who resist evil to the end? They cry out for the end of evil. We hear their plea in Revelation 6, 9, and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? Those who've suffered at the hands of evil cry out for the end of evil, and God hears, just like he did for the Hebrews in Egypt. How long, how long do we ask this enough, pray this with passion? Do we move from seeing evil and saying, ooh, yeah, that's bad, to yearning for its end, which is, of course, justice. The end of evil is marked by the presence of justice. If we, like John's readers, like the Africans who were enslaved, and like many, many people in the world today, if we saw clearly the violence of the world because we suffered at the hands of it, we would also find ourselves hoping for a God who brings an end to it all. What is the power of God for, if not to judge the wicked? What good is a God who does not plan to get rid of bad? But this is where I have to be honest about how that answer, even if it's the right answer, feels. I want evil to end, but shouldn't the approach be loving? I want, and maybe you do too, What gets called a nonviolent call for transformative justice. And to those of us who want that, our African-American siblings say, one can smell a bit too much of the sweet aroma of a suburban ideology. That's the quote that jumped out at me. And it caused me to realize at least five reasons that I get stuck in this suburban ideology, wanting nonviolent transformative justice. So I want to name these five. First, I think we get stuck because we put evil in the past. It happened a long time ago. I mean, I wasn't around when these atrocities were committed. That was so long ago. And I mean, I know that we don't want things to be like that anymore, but that means we need to come together and just build a brighter future. So we get stuck because we place evil in the past. Two, we can over-individualize evil. An individual bad person does a bad thing, and then we can just blame that one person. I mean, it works really well with somebody like Hitler, for example, to just pin it all on one person. But this also means that we would at times overlook systems. So consider, for example, how over-individualization perpetuates the sin of racism. There are systems that impoverish communities of color. The desperation of poverty at times begets violence. And then we label those individuals as violent, not like us, the civilized and it allows us to be dismissive. Third, we sometimes dramatize evil, which starts to make us think more and more that it's the stuff of fiction. 
It happens in movies and plays out in video games. And we've made it so fictitious through our media, especially, that we don't always notice it in real life, in real circumstances, in real current events. Fourth, we can over-spiritualize evil, thinking that God should just have this cosmic battle with Satan in the invisible realm and people should be left out of it. We're innocent bystanders. And finally, perhaps most importantly, we sometimes get stuck in the suburban ideology desiring nonviolent transformative justice because we benefit from evil. Might we resist the end of this era because we're standing on the very soil God is going to plow and eating the fruit that it yields? And so again, I think that perhaps at times we find ourselves not ready to receive God's justice, not comfortable with the ways that images of justice are violent because we've either placed evil in the past, over-individualized it, dramatized it so that it's not real, over-spiritualized it so it should be happening far away from us, or not recognized that we benefit from it. And all of this does not square with what John has seen of the heavenly reality and is offering those who've been oppressed. Listen to Revelation 16, 5 to 7. I heard the angel of the waters say, You are just, O holy one, who are and were, for you have judged these things because they shed the blood of saints and prophets. You've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, your judgments are true and just. In Revelations, John's case is that God sees evil clearly. God is right about what's right and wrong. God's judgments about evil are just. They're accurate. God knows. Also, God cares about evil ending. And so should we. And God is ending evil in response to the cries of those who have suffered because of it. It's the souls of the saints who've been martyred that ask for God to act and God listens. But the final piece is challenging and it's this. If God is the one ending evil, that's not mean or unfair. It's justice. And we want a God of justice. We do have a God of justice. What good is a God who cannot do anything about what is wrong? The key is to be sure that God is acting the right kind of judgment on the right kinds of things. Black theologians hear people say, this God is violent, and say, no, our God is just, seeing evil rightly and bringing it to its end. They also remind us, evil fights back. It doesn't go quietly. It isn't nonviolently transformed. It just isn't. Dr. King mentions this in a sermon of his, that there is a reminder in the freeing of the Hebrews from Egypt that evil never goes quietly. It never goes quietly. And that's what's coming through in verses like Revelation 9, 20 to 21. The rest of humankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which can't hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornication or their thefts. Evil fights back, but we don't. God brings about justice. I practice nonviolence. That's our final response to what John reveals. 
But see, our nonviolence is only made possible because judgment is really going to happen. The people of God, you'll notice, don't act violently at all. They don't bring about their own justice. They don't fight back. So perhaps the right place for transformative nonviolence is among us. We can commit to it because we know that God rightly sees evil and longs for its end, grieves its unwieldy consequences and the great pain it causes, and indeed will end it. One of our pastor friends who was black once was talking about the story of Jericho. And I was saying how it can be uncomfortable or hard. And he said, oh, see, I was always taught that Jericho is only bad news if you live on the inside. The Exodus is only bad news if you're Pharaoh. And we may think, but did everyone on the inside of Jericho deserve that? Did every Egyptian deserve that? No. But the bigger question is why we think consequences only come to those who deserve them. Part of why it's evil is because the consequences affect people who weren't involved and don't deserve it. And that's what God always sees. The pain of consequences that come to people who never chose the situation. And God's care for them comes through in Revelation 21. As you listen to these words, I'd encourage you not to think generically of humanity, but about those who've suffered, about the ones who didn't deserve the consequences, but suffering came to them because that's how evil works. And God speaks to them. Revelation 21.3 See the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be God's people, and God himself will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. So as we follow the lead of black theologians, and they invite us to understand Revelation better, they remind us to see evil clearly and respond with hopeful resistance to it. To see Jesus clearly and respond in worship. To yearn for evil's end and respond with faithfulness to the end. And to recognize that God ends evil and therefore we can practice nonviolence. In many ways, our black siblings unveil for those of us who do not experience suffering what is really going on in this book. As we close our time, I'll invite you into the same practice we did when we were together live, which is simply a breath prayer. We would breathe in, God, fill the earth with your justice, and breathe out, God, fill the earth with your love. God, fill the earth with your justice. God, fill the earth with your love. God, fill the earth with your justice. God, fill the earth with your love. Amen.